Radio Boise, in collaboration with The Modern Hotel, presents Campfire Stories, readings by notable local authors recorded live from the patio at The Modern Hotel in downtown Boise. Um, I just want to say a brief word about Allison Green. She contacted me because she had heard about this series last year. I'm not even sure how you heard about this, but all the way over in Seattle, and you're like, okay, well, let me contact you. And The Modern actually is a place you stayed, and part of your memoir takes place at The Modern. And The Ghosts Who Travel With Me is your memoir that's recently come out. And you have been, in the past, a fiction writer, and have kind of seems like morphed into more of a nonfiction writer these days. Um, and this particular memoir actually has a lot to do with Richard Brodigan's, well, it has a ton to do with Richard Brodigan's sort of trek through San Francisco and Idaho and other places. But in particular, the Idaho passages seem to mean a lot to you, and you wanted to bring those here to the modern to read about, read to us, I should say. And so I'm actually, you know, sort of been fascinated by going back into Brodigan, who is, he's an odd sort. I don't know. Is Bill English here? So, Bill English claims to have gotten into a fist fight with him back in the day. So I know he was a, you know, a divisive figure in the early and mid-60s in San Francisco and uh, points west and east and north and where we are now. So I'll just say this about Alison Green. She is the author of a memoir, A Ghost of Travel With Me, out from Ooligan and a novel, Half Moon Scar, which is available over here from Rediscovered Books. Um, her essays, stories, and poems have appeared in publications such as Gettysburg, Gettysburg Review, Ziziva, Calix, Willow Springs, Raven Chronicles, and Yes, with an exclamation point, magazine. She lives and teaches writing in Seattle. And so come on up, Allison. I just, I really wish I lived here and I could, can't hear me? Oh, now, now you can hear me? I wish I lived here so I could come to this event every month. Um, but I, I'm so excited to be here. Um, so I, I want to thank Christian for having me and of course the Modern Hotel and Radio Boise and Rediscovery Books. I know it takes a lot of people to put something like this together. So thank you to all of you. So I, I want you to think for a moment about back to when you were 13, 14, 15. Was there a writer that you loved or a book that you loved or a film or an album that just rocked your world and made you who you are? And then you went back and listened to that album again when you were older or you read that book again and you wondered, who was that person? <laughs> Like, so who are some of these people? Who are some of these albums, or what were some of these albums or books? Yeah. Oh, God. Um, oh, I thought that was a hand. No, no. <laughs> I was being like, yes, I relate, yes. but I, I can't name it all. So who are, <laughs> who are some of those? Writers that were important to you? Bands? Brits. What? Brits. Brits? Brits. Prince, Prince. Absolutely, Prince. Prince. Garcia Marquez. Gar Garcia Marquez. Yeah. So, you know, that's what happened to me was um, 
I was, it was Easter of 2008. The New York Times had a newspaper article about books you could take on literary pilgrimage. They were all beat writers like Kerouac, Burroughs, and they said, take Richard Brodigan's Trout Fishing in America on literary pilgrimage through Idaho. And I had been obsessed with Brodigan when I was a teenager. He was a very uh, popular writer in the late 60s, early 70s. And so I went up and I had that book on my shelf and I reread it and I thought, who was I at 13 that loved this writer? I, I'm kind of not getting it now, right? Um, and, and so I said, you know what, I'm going to do that literary pilgrimage. I'm going to go through Idaho. And of course, one of the reasons that I wanted to do that is I also have blood ancestry here in Idaho. My father's parents grew up in Cambridge and Grangeville. And my mother lived in Meridian when she was in elementary school. So I had all this literary and literal ancestry that was, had an Idaho connection. So, so that's why I went on this literary pilgrimage. So, um, so I'm going to read a, a few of the chapters that are very short that gives you a feel for this, this journey in my memoir. So the, the person I'm traveling with is my partner, Arlene, who's somewhere taking pictures. So she's here somewhere. Uh, OK, so this is from a chapter called A Dying Wish. So this is Here We Are on the Road. At Ellensburg, we veered onto less familiar ground. Interstate 82, which winds southeast through the fruit bowl of the nation. Farmers here have grown cherries, apples, pears, and grapes for generations. And now the region is becoming known for its wineries. Arlene looked at the map of wine tasting rooms in the guidebook. We found one, but it turned out to be in a strip mall, scotch taped to a farmer's field. After a couple of sips, we bought a bottle and were on our way. We crossed into Oregon and soon were driving through my mother's birthplace, Pendleton. On other visits, I'd found the hospital where she was born and bought a jacket at the woolen mills. Pendleton is known for its roundup, a festival of bareback riding, calf roping, steer wrestling, and wild cow milking that draws thousands. The roundup was starting in a few days, but we were just passing through. Arlene was driving now and somewhere along Interstate 84 where it followed the parched brown route of the Oregon Trail, she said, so what was it about Brodigan? I was thinking that it was interesting to be taking the Oregon Trail backwards, east not west, and that the ghosts of the ones who died along the way must be wondering at the whizzing of our tires. I said, that's what I'm trying to figure out. I told her that when I went back to my adolescent journals after rereading Trout Fishing in America, I discovered that Brodigan appeared more than any other writer. In one entry, when I was 13, I made a list of what I would do if I knew I was dying. One, fall in love. Two, learn to speak my mind. Three, sing on a street corner. Four, tour Europe and South America. Five, smoke pot. And six, meet Brodigan. <laughs> I said, I've done all those things but one now. <laughs> Unfortunately, Brodigan was long gone, but his Idaho wasn't. We hit sprawl in Caldwell, traffic crapped, heat pulsed off the asphalt. Gas stations, shopping malls, auto dealers, and billboards didn't let up for over 30 miles as we skirted Nampa and Meridian. Semis and SUVs boxed in our little Honda. In Brodigan's time, there must have been a gentler way into Idaho. But once we exited for Boise, we were charmed. A cluster of tall buildings and the domed capital marked the downtown. The flat, wide streets were perfect for strolling and bicycling. 
We pulled into the parking lot of the modern hotel and turned off the engine. It ticked in the quiet of the warm Sunday evening. We were here. So that was 2008, and we stayed in a little room up there. So a little bit more on that later. So who here is actually familiar with Richard Brodigan? Like you've read his work or somewhat familiar? Okay. So some folks, not a whole lot. Um, so he was really uh, associated with as being kind of a hippie writer, although he did not call himself a hippie at all. But if you read Trout Fishing in America, and I really recommend it, it's not like any novel you've ever read. It's not linear. It's totally kind of psychedelic, all these weird little chapters. It, it doesn't kind of make sense. It's very metaphorical. So it's, in that sense, it feels very contemporary. So as I was thinking about why I've been so obsessed with Brodigan, I knew a big piece of it was that I'm a late baby boomer. So I was born in 1963, and I really, really wanted to be a hippie, but I was not old enough. <laughs> so this little chapter is called Napping Through Woodstock. I first heard the term Generation Jones when Barack Obama was running for president. Coined by sociologist Jonathan Pontel, it refers to those of us born between the mid-50s and mid-60s. He says that because we were born into idealism, but grew up in the cynical 70s, we're jonesing for something more, but not sure what it is. My earliest hippie memory is in Seattle's Volunteer Park. A young woman paints a butterfly on my arm while my parents watch from a picnic blanket. I look up at the woman's beatific smile, her silky hair, and then I look down, craning to see the pink and purple butterfly near my smallpox vaccination scar. The young woman takes my hand and leads me to the dancing circle. I'm the only child among the flower children. Being born in 1963 meant I was lumped in with the baby boomers, but too young to stay at the party. My parents made me go home for a nap. I wasn't old enough to hop a bus to Woodstock or find my way to Haight-Ashbury when it was still sweet. Instead, I danced in the living room to the Fifth Dimension's Age of Aquarius and watched Laugh-In on Monday nights. When I grew up, I knew a bus would take me someplace magical. A nostalgia for times missed seeped through my adolescence. Protesting the return of draft registration in the late 70s was not as dramatic as protesting the war. At 14, I was playing my guitar and singing Joni Mitchell's Circle Game on the street in Seattle's University District when a man with long hair gave me a look that said, sorry, you missed it. I never played Circle Game on the street again. My mother, who was born in 1940, watched the college freshmen doing a twist. She and the other seniors looked on in bewilderment. She has never once expressed regret for being too old for flower power. One of my favorite pictures of her is at a protest where she's pregnant with me and holding a sign that says, ban the bomb. She was marching for peace when the flower children were walking to school with their Lone Ranger lunchboxes. So there, I say to you older baby boomers, so there. My mother and I straddle your pig in a python generation. We've got you surrounded. Except that everything you had, I wanted. And everything you did, I wanted to do for years and years and years. So um, Brodigan actually lived in San Francisco most of his adult life. And, um, but in the summer of 1961, he and his wife and baby daughter took a trip through Idaho. They spent the summer in Idaho trout fishing. Basically, they were all over. Um, so um, that was, if you read the book, there's these little chapters that you see taking place in Idaho. 
So the, the places that I wanted to go most were Stanley, Big Redfish Lake, Little Redfish Lake, because he names the campsite where they stayed in. So that was a holy grail. So, um, so that's why um, we, so we go up into, into Stanley. So let me uh, pick up the trip here as we're, we're leaving. Uh, Boise. So we spent a couple of days in Boise before we headed into the mountains where Brodigan had done his trout fishing. But we were wary. A hundred miles in the future, the campgrounds promised open sky and only millimeters of nylon protection against predator aliens, the drunk hunting kind or the more organized hoodie kind. Arlene's Spanish accent often marks her as an outsider, so she thinks about these things more than I do. I wasn't sure we were going to the Idaho of her imagination, but I was sensitive to the possibility. In the meantime, we enjoyed Boise. Old brick red houses with white trim reminded me of my grandmother's house in Spokane. Leafy trees hung over sidewalks. Arlene had been wanting to learn about the Basque community, and we visited the Basque Museum and ate chorizo at Bar Guernica. Our last night in Boise, we drank wine on the balcony of our room at the Modern Hotel. Across the street was Oakley Moody Service Inc. Auto Repair. The Modern Hotel used to be a travel lodge, but it was spiffed up to emphasize its mid-century modern architecture. The owner's grandmother, a Basque woman, had owned a boarding house called the Modern Hotel in Nampa, Idaho, and it was one of the few local places that wasn't segregated. Everyone was welcome. Now the new Modern Hotel's neon sign burned a cool white in the dark. We propped our feet on the railing and clinked glasses. Back when this was a travel lodge, it would have been the kind of place my grandfather pulled into with his family in the 50s. And if he had any trouble with the Plymouth, he would have poked his head into Oakley Moody Service Inc. and asked if they had a moment to check under the hood. So I there's my grandfather. So uh, my cousin Christine is here, who lives in Boise. Were you at the 1999 family reunion at Diamond Lake? Okay, so you won't know. You didn't know this happened, but so uh, I wanted to just read a short piece that gets at the blood ancestry, the, the literal ancestry that informs the memoir. So my grandparents, so this is my grandfather who grew up in Grangeville. He moved to Spokane as a young adult where he met my grandmother. So uh, this is called the Idaho-Panama Connection. The Idaho-Panama Connection. My mother's family, my mother's family was having a reunion at the lake cabin near Newport, Washington. It was the first reunion after my mother's parents had died. Her five siblings were there and their 20 children and their new, who knows how many children. Arlene and I had just met and I dragged her along. My father brought his father, who didn't know anyone there, but was game for the trip. One afternoon, kids ran around with squirt guns while the men fired up the grills. My grandfather was sitting in a lawn chair watching the activity. Arlene sat next to him. Where are you from, he asked. Everyone asked Arlene where she's from. Panama, she said. Where are you from? She always asks back. You from Panama, he said. I'm from Idaho. You can stick with me. And so the outsiders stuck together. <laughs> Idaho's like, what, 20 minutes away? <laughs> I don't know why he felt so much like an outsider. <laughs> All right. So, um, Rereading Trout Fishing in America, um, there's much about it to like, but there's much about it not to like. Uh, it's quite, uh, as, as of much of Brodigan's work, the women really are not 
very present. They're, they're pretty much props. So um, one part of it really made me cringe, and it takes place at Worswick Hot Springs. Do you all, do people here know where Worswick Hot Springs is? Okay, it's near Featherville. So I, I, so I had to go, I was like, why did I come all the way to Boise and not go to Worswick Hot Springs? So I, we came back in 2010, stayed at the Modern Hotel, and, uh, and went to Worswick Hot Springs. So you'll see why, the chat, why I had to go back. So I screwed up. Our first trip to Idaho was launched before I was ready, although I didn't realize it at that time. I returned to Seattle, began working on this manuscript, dug deeper into Brodigan's book, and discovered that I needed to visit Worswick Hot Springs. In the chapter Worswick, Brodigan, that is, the narrator, sits with his wife in the hot springs and gets an erection. She tells him to pull out before he comes, and he watches his semen mingle with dead fish. The narrator calls his wife my woman, which was a popular way to refer to one's wife in the 60s. But the woman gets no other name in the whole book. His semen gets more description than she does. It's misty and stringy like a falling star. The dead fish get more description than she does. I had to see the location that prompted this cringe-inducing chapter. So two years after our first trip, I convinced Arlene to spend one more week with me in search of another piece of Brodigan's Idaho. On an August day, we head east from Boise toward Mountain Home. The chain restaurants and hotels fall behind us, and the ground flattens, soil rooted to earth by pale, wheat-colored grasses and sagebrush clumps. The Boise State Stop Feed and Fuel says it's 81 degrees, and it's not yet 10 a.m. Last night in our room at the Modern Hotel in Boise, I read the Worswick chapter to Arlene and asked her how she thought I might have read it as an adolescent. Did I identify with the narrator or the wife, the writer or the muse? Arlene said I was missing another dimension. My reading was essentially voyeuristic. I was 13 and titillated. <laughs> at that age, she had been hiding Henry Miller's Tropic of Cancer. She's right, of course. I was titillated. Sex was, I knew, an experience in my future. Perhaps not too far in my future, and I craved information. Babysitting in various households, I'd found The Joy of Sex, The Story of O, and Nancy Friday's Book of Women's Sexual Fantasies, My Secret Garden. The scene of the couple in the hot springs was one more image of what might await. Whether I identified with him or with her would become an interesting question to me as an adult. But at the time, the scene itself was what fascinated. I think about this as Route 20 takes us into the Boise National Forest and the foothills of the Soldier Mountains. We're about 100 miles south of Stanley, where we traveled two years ago, but at a lower elevation. We top a steep hill, and a dramatic valley opens below us. A puffball cloud looks comically alone in the blue sky. The road drops into a valley and widens a bit. Now we're hugging Little Smoky Creek in a narrow canyon, making our way toward Worswick Hot Springs. We come upon a slow-moving pickup truck, and it pulls over to let us pass. Arlene squints at the driver. I say, he's just going fishing. She says, he's looking at me to decide if he should go fishing or hunting. We're back in the land of Aryans and bears. In fact, the notice tacked to the three-paneled wooden sign marking Worswick Hot Springs tells us, don't surprise bears, make noise. Taking no chances, I call up to the three men standing by the lowest pool. Nice day, huh? Their fat, tired dirt bikes are splayed along the path, 
One turns his monumental belly toward me, sure is, this does the trick, and they leave us in peace as we survey the scene. It's not what I had imagined. The hot springs pools of my imagination were tucked into a cozy forest, a private retreat under pines, but these pools are set in an open, denuded hillside. The grass is stamped out by hordes of visitors. Perhaps when Brodigan visited, the grass still grew to the edges of the pools. He describes no orange tarp, no outhouse, no large wooden sign. Perhaps the spot felt more private. I'm surprised, but not disappointed. The soldier mountains are beautiful, and soon we will wind our way along Little Smoky Creek to the Boise River, making a loop through Featherville and back down a mountain home. I wander up the hillside, dipping my fingers in each progressively warmer pool. The hot afternoon doesn't inspire me to change my clothes in the outhouse and soak, not even in the coolest pool at the bottom of the hill. Now, two years after I stood on the shore of Little Redfish Lake, I realize I've grown more comfortable with my ambivalence about this author who meant so much to me over 30 years ago. Brodigan has become more real, more fully dimensional, in the same way that our parents become more human, that is, more like us over time. I don't have to come down on one side or the other of him. I can appreciate all of what is trout fishing in America, its bursts of invention, its troubling passages, its poignancy. Darn, I say to Arlene as she drives away from Warswick Hot Springs, if those guys hadn't been there, we could have had sex in one of the pools. <laughs> she gives me a look, not in this lifetime. Whether what bothers her most is the men and their dirt bikes, the ghost of that stringy semen, or the possibility of elk poop, she is not going to enact some hot lesbian version of Brodigan's scene so I can work it into this book. She refuses even to feel the temperature of the water. Thank you. Let's give it up one more time. Thank you, Allison. <laughs> and yes, we have all soaked in those, well, tainted hot springs. So I guess, you know, a few questions I'll start out with, or just a couple, and then you guys can open up to, you know, whatever you'd like to ask. I just feel like, you know, I, I've shouted out Prince, and then I, you know, he does still influence me, but... Also, I'm sort of embarrassed a little bit by that past, musically, that I was into. I would say, I don't know, Brodigan could almost be, you know, and going back to him myself, after, you know, I knew you were gonna be here, I was like, his stuff is a little bit shaky. I don't know, it's not that great. But then it's really great, and it's really not that great. So I felt sort of like weird myself. But for you, why, I suppose, in the first place, was he so alluring? Was it just like the, the sexuality, the stylistic stuff, or was it just this idea of being, I don't know, experimental? Yeah, that's a good question. So, I, you know, when I think back now, I think certainly this vision of a kind of hippie world that I wanted to be a part of was part of it. Um, I also think he was, he's a very accessible writer. His writing on, on the surface is very simple. So a 13-year-old could read it and get a lot of it. Not all of it, obviously, but a lot. So um, but he was also really poetic and metaphorical. And probably the best thing he does when it really works are these really outrageous piling on of metaphor. And I think for me it was 
a vision of a kind of writing that I had never seen before. And even then, I was writing in my journal all the time. I, I wanted to be a writer. And so I think it just, it was like, wow, this is what writing can be? That's, that's wild. So I think all those things. And then you sort of lost it when he kind of pissed you off a little bit. And then you like regained a respect for that sort of experimental sort of like writing, it seems like. And then perhaps, I mean, for me, it's interesting as, as primarily a fiction writer, you were a fiction writer more so early. And now you've shifted into the nonfiction realm. And so I guess speak to that a little bit, like why that's appealed to you. I know you've mentioned that in a couple of interviews I've read. So I don't know. Why nonfiction now more than fiction? Yeah. So, um, I, my first book came out many years ago, 15 years ago, it was a novel, and um, I wrote another novel after that. It uh, was about the WTO protests in Seattle, but St. Martin's did not want to also publish that one. And then I just kept, I kept writing, and I kept writing, and I kept writing fiction, and it just wasn't really happening for me. And I got to a point where I was like, what am I even doing? So. Um, actually, this project was what kind of saved me. I thought, you know, I'm going to do this weird literary pilgrimage. I'm just going to write whatever. Um, so when I came back from the trip, every morning I would get up at 5 in the morning. I would read a chapter from Trout Fishing in America, and I would use it as a writing prompt. And I would write for an hour. And so at the end of the, by winter, by January, I had all these pieces that I eventually wove them together. I think one, one thing for me was, I, there's so much interesting stuff going on with creative nonfiction right now that's experimental, it's with, experimenting with form. And it, it freed me up to let go of a dream of what I thought I was supposed to be doing and just do something that was fun. Uh, so that's a piece of it. Um, the other thing I've really found with creative nonfiction is uh, it's sort of like form poetry, where it seems like um, it would be confining to write a sonnet or a villanelle. But the form, the strictures of the form, frees you up in a funny way. Like, I'll open something up. And having to work within truth, at least as you know it, even though we know there's no real truth, but at least as you're, you're stuck with the facts of your life and what happened, it freed me up to be more creative. I, so I think that's what happened. Oh, very cool. So some questions out here, some Idaho questions. Who's been trout fishing in America out here? Somebody has. Somebody. Favorite place in? On, on Broadway's route, what is your favorite? Because you, you had probably not ever been to many of these places. So what was your most striking place? Because you were in some amazing places. Oh my god, Stanley. Right? Oh my god, the Sawtooth Mountains. I mean, just <laughs> stunning, stunning, stunning. We, we were planning to camp. Like, we had all this camping gear, but I was looking online, and it was, this was early September. I'm like, it's like 25 degrees in the morning. I'm like, how, how are we going to camp, you know? And so I kept, we were like, we're going to camp, we're going to camp, you know? And then we got up there, and we are like, we're not going to camp. So <laughs> we stayed in this lovely hotel on the river, and, you know, it's like 75 degrees in the afternoon. We're drinking wine, and then there's, like, frost on the car in the morning. But uh, I, just, I just couldn't believe, I just had no idea it was there. So just stunning. Yeah, I would agree, just being a Seattleite for many years and coming over this way, we thought we had mountains, the Cascades, the Olympics, they're pretty cool. But it's like you get up to the Stanley Basin and it's like, holy, it goes up another 7,000 feet and it's beautiful. And it, yeah, there's frost in the tent and that's not always the most comfortable. Um, other questions about the notion of Brodigan 
who was a crazy son of a if you read his poetry, his poetry is, is pretty cool, but it's also kind of effed up a little bit. So the question, oh, yes. You know, um, Let me repeat the question okay. for Radio Boise purposes. So, <laughs> any other writers that influenced you like Mr. Brodigan? So probably the next writer that really influenced me was Doris Lessing. And uh, so I was reading uh, The Golden Notebook when I was 16. And I think uh, it's really probably quite telling that by the time I was 16, um, I had graduated to a writer who was writing about being a woman in the world uh, who, uh, if you haven't read The Golden Notebook, it's, it's just a really classic novel about uh, uh, the crazy-makingness of being a woman in the world who's trying to be a writer, who's trying to be politically involved, who's trying to find love, and just feels like nuts. And, um, and uh, so I finally found a writer who, unlike Brodigan, where every, every cover of his books is a picture of him with a nameless woman, right? So the writer's male and the muse is female. I found the woman who was her own muse. So, yeah, Doris Lessing. And the women, are, the women are always below Brodigan in those covers, right? And they're like, okay, he's here with his hat doing this thing, and they're down there. So it is pretty, pretty awful, actually, I would say. Two more quick questions from either me or you guys. I've got two. You guys have one to fill. Okay, there we go. Brodigan's voice influencing. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think um, back in my journal when I was adolescent, I'm writing these passages that are Brodigan. I'm trying to be like Brodigan, right? And they're terrible, of course. But I, I do think, uh, in to some degree, that the cadence, the 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 short chapters, it, there's a bit of an homage there to his style. I can't get away with those weird metaphors. You know, like a trout stream is like a department store, and he go, it goes on and on and on, and, and somehow it makes it work. But yeah, there's definitely, it's inflected there, I think. I'm, I'm roughly the same age as you are, but my mother was 40 when I was born, so she's twice the age of your mother. I'd like to fell in love with Brodigan, and one of my favorite poems was, he'd sell a rat's to a blind man for a wedding ring. I just thought that was just, that was just so Sell a rat's to a blind man for a wedding ring. So sophisticated. <laughs> so, so, um, Brilliant. Sarcastic, that's not the right word. And then I hear my mother saying, be nice. Be nice. And I've had to reconcile that my whole life. And now at the age of whatever, I think be nice is a better is <laughs> a better model for living, and I just wondered how you feel about Richard Brodigan. Should he be nice? M nicer than Richard? Yeah. Oh, you want to ask No, go ahead. So also, I just want to point out, for those of you who are not familiar with Brodigan, that's the whole poem. Yeah. That's yes. the whole poem, right? <laughs> so imagine how electrifying that is when you're 14, right? Another of his poems is, I feel like a turd sewn to a garbage can lid. <laughs> <laughs> I may not be quoting it exactly, but it, that, that's... That's the poem, right? Uh, is being nice better? Well, I, I think being nice is usually good. I think there are times when we shouldn't be nice, like we can't afford to be nice. But uh, I think when we have 
open hearts and we're uh, open to hearing each other's stories, then sometimes I think we have to comment on, like if a writer writing today with Brodigan's misogyny, I would probably say it's a good idea to call that out. But, uh, but that's a kind of being nice, because that's a kind of holding all of us accountable to what's going on in the world. So yeah, but you know, I, I try to be nice. <laughs> okay, well, I was just gonna either ask like, terrible musical influence as a child, or what is next in your writing? So let's ask what's next. We can just like talk to you outside this about your embarrassing musical influence early on. So what next? I was listening to Judy Collins a lot when I was 13. Um, uh, what's next? I'm working on a memoir. So uh, my family lived in the Virgin Islands when I was a kid. My father is an anthropologist, and he was doing research for his dissertation. And we lived there for, uh, my mother, my brother, and I just lived there for um, a couple of months. Someone broke into our house. Uh, I was hit by a rock, got a skull fracture, and um, it was it was 1969. Virgin Islands, the whole world is going crazy. It was crazy there, and um, so I'm writing about race and gender and what that experience meant to my family. Awesome. Well, let's give a round. Round, round of applause. And Rediscovered Books is selling your memoir and your novel, and you'll be happy to sign some. And we have about a, I don't know, 10, 15 minute break before Mitch Whelan comes up here and reads some fiction to you guys. Thank you, Allison. Mitch Whelan, by the way, is somebody who I've, I don't know, I've learned so damn much from over the years. I was an MFA student of his um, and came in as a writer, somebody I'd, who had done a lot of stuff, you know, sort of out there with a the written word, but not in a, really not that good a way, I gotta say. <laughs> and people like Mitch Whelan and Robert Olmsted in the MFA program at Boise State completely shaped me as a person and as a writer. and. Um, I guess the wisdom in Mitch Wieland has been something that I've constantly on back to. He's always asked the, the hard questions of your prose, and he's asked that of, him, of his own prose, too. And as a result, you know, his work has been award-winning and compelling and stuff that, like, ah, that I've always gone back to. He's got Willie Slater's Lane and God's Dogs as two novels. His short stories have appeared in the Southern Review, the Kenyon Review, the Yale Review, Tri-Quarterly, the Sewanee Review, The Best of the West, Shenandoah, Story Quarterly, Perry Schooner, and most recently, the Missouri Review, which is gonna read part of his story set in Japan tonight that is out in the summer issue um, of the Missouri Review. And gosh, he's just an all-around good dude, so. Mitch Whelan, come on up here. Well, thanks to Chris for that uh, kind uh, introduction. Can everyone hear me? Good. Uh, and uh, thanks to The Modern, of course, for uh, creating such a, a wonderful event, and all of you for coming out on a Monday, right? A summer Monday night. Uh, so, and it's Chris mentioned I'm going to read uh, from a story set in Japan. 
in another life, uh, in 1986, I earned a bachelor's degree in uh, business, uh, marketing research to be exact, from uh, San Diego State. And I lasted in the business world for, I believe, four months and then promptly sold my car and moved, used the money from my car uh, to move to Japan and taught there for several years uh, and then came back and changed direction and got an MFA degree from uh, Alabama. So um, this story is from my novel. I've been working on it for several years. Uh, I'm going to read two short scenes, each about 12 minutes long, so you kind of pace yourself as we go. So. The story is called uh, Snow Angels and doesn't need any setup. You'll, you'll get it as we go. <clears throat> At Inokashira Park, the black trunks of the cherry trees rose from the pristine snow. Not California, Wyatt West thought, and waited for the familiar pangs to subside. A galaxy of snowflakes tumbled and twirled around his head. When the homesickness had run its course, he walked into the park watching his boots mark the smooth surface. And there, like a construct of his dreams, was Yoshimi Watanabe. His next door neighbor stood in an open expanse of white, of, of white, facing Wyatt but not seeing him, her arms extended to the sides. She wore the ivory button down and short plaid skirt of her high school uniform. Red high top basketball sneakers adorned her feet. Her navy peacoat and leather book bag had been stashed under the shelter of a distant pine. As he watched, Yoshimi closed her eyes and dropped backward. Both arms still raised, her spine ramrod straight. She landed with a thud in the deep snow, then windmilled her arms and legs, jumping jack style. Her laughter rang across the empty park. Wyatt remembered learning to make snow angels when he was five or six, his mother laughing at his own laughter. Emboldened by the memory, he walked right up to this peculiar girl, stopping inches beyond her thrashing legs. Each time her feet swung outward, scarlet underwear flashed against the snow. Wyatt closed his eyes, wavering above his neighbor as if he might fall. Are you looking up my skirt, she said. Wyatt opened his eyes to find the girl staring at him, head raised, snow clinging to the raven darkness of her hair. Her bare legs were blushed from the cold, not intentionally, he said. I mean, I wasn't trying to look. Why not? What, he said. Why weren't you trying to see my mysteries? Wyatt felt his throat tighten on cue. While it had never been easy talking with girls in the good old U.S. of A., it was almost impossible in this frantic foreign city. You speak English very well, he said. You are equally gifted with the language. Yoshimi sat up and rose to her feet, careful not to spoil the perfect snow angel she'd made. So, did you see my underwear or not, she said. They're bright red. Like the rising sun, I'm being patriotic today. My scarlet round rump on a field of pure white like our glorious national flag. Are you headed to school, he said. Are you kidding? The day's too fantastic for those dreary ideas. I'm skipping. Me too, Wyatt said, a partial truth. In the mornings, he was supposed to be studying online with a virtual high school in Los Angeles, but hadn't logged on since moving to Japan three weeks ago. With his exhausted father teaching conversation skills to Sony executives morning, noon, and night, Wyatt was pretty much on his own. 
So, what do you think of my tenchi? Yoshimi pointed at the winged shape in the snow. We call that a snow angel, he said. Yes, my angel in the snow. Yoshimi took a big step sideways. Well, as the old song says, one is the loneliest number. She flung her arms outward and dropped. Wyatt winced as she plopped onto her back. Like a wind-up toy, Yoshimi started churning her arms and legs. Don't look at my Japanese flag, she shouted. Mind your P's and Q's. Wyatt studied a row of pine trees dividing the park, their branches heavy with snow. In the dark pond opposite the pines, a flotilla of dazzling white swans cruised toward the distant shore. He didn't know what to do or say ne next. Yoshimi was unlike anyone he'd ever met. There, she said, standing beside him once again. They are now an angel couple, angel lovers, sleeping in the snow. Yoshimi grabbed his hand, her fingers shockingly cold, and pulled him one pace to the right until they were clear of the pair of imprints. Come on, she said, let's create a family. Let's give them children to watch over. Here, stand beside me and raise your wings. Wyatt stretched his arms to the side, fingertips touching Yoshimi's. She gazed at him and smiled. Her eye teeth were slightly crooked, something he hadn't noticed before. It made her prettier somehow. Now we fall together, ne, ready, ichi, ni, san. Wyatt allowed himself to drop straight back, landing beside Yoshimi in the yielding snow. Out of the pale sky, a million flakes plummeted toward him, plastering his face, stinging his eyes. Wyatt spread his arms and legs as far as he could and brought them back together, then swung them out once more, the action resurrecting memories too numerous to name. It seemed only months ago that he'd played in the snow with his mother, though over a decade had passed. It was almost half a year since that unspeakable day. Come on, Slowpokey. When he looked over, Yoshimi was already carving another angel. Wyatt hurried to keep up, standing and moving to a new spot. Yoshimi laughed again, her slender limbs swishing in the snow. At last she scrambled to her feet. Wyatt did the same. They stood looking down at the dozen or so angels in the snow, breathing hard from their exertions. It was the most fun he'd had in months. That's what they needed, Yoshimi said, trembling beside him. A big happy family to keep them company. She looked him in the eye. Is your family happy? My mother's dead. Wyatt clamped his mouth shut, surprised to have blurted out such a weird proclamation. My father is equally dead, Yoshimi said without missing a beat. I am stuck with my freaking sister. My mom sent us to Tokyo for school. That is why I make happy families in the snow. Her lips looked blue in the diffused light. Snow clung to her skirt and blouse. You're going to catch cold, he said. Yoshimi turned her back to him. Can you get the snow off me? Wyatt felt his heart pick up speed. Hurry, she said, shaking any more. I'm freezing. Wyatt brushed snow from her hair. He wiped off her shoulders, swept his hands across her upper back. He felt Yoshimi tense. He reached out and stayed, she reached out and stayed his hand. Wait, Yoshimi said, peering through the falling snow. We have company. Along the northern border of Inokashira Park, cruising down the plowed streets on pink bicycles was a pack of teenage girls. The riders wore frilly pink dresses with matching pink shoes and knee socks. 
Pink streamers flapped from the handlebars and pedals of the bikes. They rode in formation like a motorcycle gang. The lead girl had streaks of neon pink in her hair. Who are they, he asked. My enemies from school. They are at the top of the food chain. I am on the bottom. Wyatt watched the girls glide along the park. Despite the snowstorm, none of them wore coats, their flamboyant dresses like flowers blooming in a black and white world. They're bullies, he asked. They call themselves the Pink Flamingos. That is why I changed my name to Yoshimi. It is from the Flaming Lips CD entitled, Yoshimi Battles the Pink Robots. I have my own robots to conquer. You fight them, Wyatt asked. I will one day soon. I am the superhero of my own life, and those skanks are my arch villains. They harass me every day and call me names. They trip me in the halls and push me downstairs. They threaten to shave the hair from my head. I hate them with all my being. I will defeat the pink flamingos and celebrate my victory. There's eight of them. Yes, and that is why I must escape before they spot me. I am not ready to vanquish them yet. I must train more exclusively. Across the snowy park, the pink flamingos coasted past Wyatt and Yoshimi as if on patrol. The leader pointed straight at them, her mouth a sudden dark oval. She thrust her fist into the air and held it aloft, a signal of some sort. I've been discovered, Yoshimi shouted. I must flee. She lowered her head and bolted toward the pines. The bike swung around with a single mind, changing direction like a flock of birds. The girls dismounted where the pavement ended and ran hard across the deep snow, knees pumping high beneath the delicate filigree of their skirts. They fanned out across the park like wolves on the hunt, surrounding their quarry, closing in. The leader reached Yoshimi and shoved her down. Wyatt sprinted to the rescue across the uneven drifts, but found himself behind a barricade of pink lace. He could not believe what was happening. Today is my destiny, Wyatt San, Yoshimi shouted at him. Today I battle these harlots of the underworld. Over the heads of the flamingos, Wyatt watched the leader shake her fist in Yoshimi's face. The rest of the gang inched closer to their prey. This would not be a fair fight. Wyatt shouldered his way through the girls and spun to face them, blocking their advance. They appeared incredulous at this unexpected development a scruffy, shaggy-haired gaijin separating them from their supreme leader. To the pink flamingos, it must not seem possible that a complete stranger would interfere with their well-choreographed schoolgirl thuggery. Behind him, Yoshimi screeched like a banshee, then came the sickening thunk of flesh on flesh. Someone rolled against the back of his legs, almost taking him down. He craned his neck to find the leader crumpled in the snow, holding her nose, brilliant red blood trickling onto the stark white. Wyatt held out his arms, preventing the others from rushing Yoshimi. When he looked back, the leader was rising to her feet on shaky legs. Her dress was torn at the shoulder, a pink bra strap showing. Even your underwear is pink, Yoshimi asked. Kuso, the leader said, spitting out the word. She seemed at a loss for what to do next, torn and battered as she was, bejeweled with clumps of snow. When the girl stumbled back toward the pink cluster of bicycles, her friends followed like defeated rebel soldiers. Yoshimi stood and watched them go. We are superheroes, she yelled. 
We have defeated the forces of evil. Well, you did at least. You were my sidekick, my companion and fearless protector. Without warning, Yoshimi Watanabe leaped right into his arms. Wyatt braced his legs to keep the two of them upright. She gripped him, her heart hammering against his chest until the breath fled his lungs, then leaned back and grinned. She gave him an exaggerated wink, pressed her lips against his mouth, and kissed him as if the world were about to end. So that's the first scene. I'm going to read one more short scene. Um, I'm going to skip one scene. Uh, in the very next scene, Yoshimi and Wyatt uh, take the train into Shibuya uh, and, and visit a love hotel. And what you learn uh, in that scene is Yoshimi is from the town of Okuma, which is one of the uh, towns that were evacuated after Fukushima Daiichi blew. And uh, her town has been uh, empty. It's in the exclusion zone. It's been empty for, for 14 months. Uh, her father is buried at a cemetery right outside of Okuma, and Yoshimi's been unable to visit her father's grave since the disaster. Uh, she, has, she does not even know that if his uh, gravestone is still upright after the tsunami washed ashore. And we also learn that Wyatt's mother was born in northern Japan at Misawa Air Force Base in the 70s, and Wyatt has her funeral urn in his suitcase, so he has his ash, her ashes with him and uh, is looking for a place to spread them. Beneath a cobalt sky, Wyatt climbed onto a paddle boat in the shape of a white swan. The park attendant, a jovial man with a round, tight belly, helped Yoshimi step aboard as if she were royalty. Once seated beside him as she adjusted her ever-present skirt, the attendant winked at Wyatt on the sly. With his black rubber boot, the man shoved the boat from the dock and gave him two thumbs up in final farewell. The enormous swan drifted backward and spun in a lazy quarter turn. Ushimi gripped the steering wheel. I am the courageous but foolhardy captain, she said, positioning her red sneakers on the pedals. You are my obedient first mate who worries constantly about my judgment. She started pedaling with remarkable gusto, her knees rising and falling like pistons, and steered them toward the open waters of Inokashira Pond, the fiberglass neck and head of the swan leading the way. Wyatt started his own energetic pedaling, as happy as he could remember being since his mother's death. Though it was the first warm day of spring, he and Yoshimi were the only people on the water. Behind them, a fleet of chained rental boats bobbed against the dock, a few like their own resembling large waterfowl, swans, geese, ducks, but most fitted with sleek upper shells of solid colors, yellow, blue, green, pink. Yoshimi shouted with glee beside him. She pulled her skirt up extra high, her bare thighs flexing as she cranked the pedals. They sailed like mad down the middle of the wide pond, water churning behind them, frothy spray on their backs. Last summer I did this all the time, she said. I would imagine I was part of the swan herself. I pictured myself as her beating heart. At the far end of the pond, Yoshimi swung the boat in a gradual arc. Wyatt's thighs were already burning, but Yoshimi continued to pump her legs like a human dynamo. When they reached the center of the pond again, she finally quit pedaling. She twisted in her seat, her long hair whipping in the breeze, and regarded him without speaking. Her expression had abruptly turned serious. Will you take a trip with me, she asked. 
a trip to my father's grave. Isn't it dangerous there? You know, radioactive fallout in the streets. Any great act requires courage and sacrifice. It is how we prove ourselves to the gods. We must act bravely against tremendous adversity. I thought your town was in the exclusion zone. How would we get past the blockades? It will not be hard. I know the area better than inept government officials. Yoshimi smiled, her crooked eye teeth showing. My house has sat empty since the reactors blew. We can sleep in my room. I will show you my childhood things. But won't we get sick? That is for Buddha to decide. I believe my father's spirit will protect us. I don't think we should risk, risk it, Wyatt said. Taking risks is all we have left. Yoshimi leaned close, her eyes sparkling. You can take your mother with us. You can put her ashes on my father's grave. The cemetery is quite close to where she was born. She can truly return to the place of her birth. Wyatt thought about the urn in his suitcase, cradled among his socks and t-shirts. Then I'll go, he said. Your father has been alone far too long. Yoshimi jumped into his lap and the boat rocked precariously. She threw her arms around Wyatt's neck, pulling his mouth to hers. Her tongue fluttered over his teeth. Somewhere in his brain, he registered the sound of roiling water. Their boat wobbled as small waves hit the hull. He realized they were not alone. One of the sleek paddle boats, its cabin Deglo pink, was barreling straight toward them. Two flamingos were at the helm, legs spinning beneath the pink lace of their dresses. Yoshimi sprang from his lap, landing effortlessly in her seat, both feet on the pedals. We will outrun the she yelled. From either side, two more pink boats were closing in. Wyatt saw another approaching from behind. The girls must have rented all the pink paddle boats on the dock. It was typical flamingo strategy, surround their victim and attack. Why won't they give up, Wyatt said. I was once a pink flamingo, she said. I was ordered to throw a classmate down the stairs at our school, but I refused. They have hounded me ever since my acute betrayal. They will never give up. Can't the school stop them? Adults can stop nothing. They are worse than these costume tramps. Yoshimi nodded toward their assailants. Ramming speed, she yelled. Wyatt pedaled with all the strength his tired legs could muster. Yoshimi aimed for the boat in front of them, knuckles wide on the steering wheel, strong thighs flashing in the sun. They were on a definite collision course. As Yoshimi's intent became clear, the girls in her crosshairs quit pedaling, doubt clouding their pretty faces. Prepare for impact, Yoshimi shouted. The pair of flamingos bounded from their seats, tumbling into the pond. The boats collided with a wallop that echoed across the park. Dazed and sputtering, the girls treaded water, their dresses billowing as if large jellyfish were attacking from below. Keep pedaling, Yoshimi said, yanking the wheel hard to the right. The giant head of the swan wheeled around to face the remaining boats. Yoshimi steamed directly toward the weakened armada. She singled out a boat piloted by the notorious gang leader. The boats quickly closed the distance, chugging for a he another head-on collision. Banzai, Yoshimi shouted. As the boats were about to crash, the leader veered to the right. Too late, Wyatt saw that she brandished a futuristic paintball gun. 
Before he could yell a warning, the girl leaned out from her cabin, unleashing a blast of pink onto the side of Yoshimi's head. A sharp pain struck Wyatt's forehead, his eyes instantly burning. Let's get out of here, Yoshimi said, her feet working the pedals. We must save ourselves. The other boats approached from either side, blocking their retreat. Beyond the head and curved neck of the swan, the leader of the pink flamingo stood on her bobbing deck, legs splayed apart, eyes narrowed. She calmly raised her weapon. Your move, skank queen, Yoshimi said. The leader let loose a barrage of Japanese. Yoshimi's face turned pale. This morning, she said to Wyatt, they delivered certain photographs to my sister. They show us leaving the love hotel together. We are doomed. With dramatic flair, Yoshimi rose slowly to her feet. She spread both arms to the side and closed her eyes. You have won, Yuko Shimada, she shouted. Let your cowardly retribution begin. The leader took careful aim, pulled the trigger, and a splotch of paint appeared over Yoshimi's heart. Thank you. All right, everybody. Mitch Woolman, one more time. <laughs> Thank you, Mitch. I was fantastic. And so once again, Mitch will answer a few questions, but I would definitely, I suppose other folks might be interested. I guess I'm interested in knowing how this fits into the overall scope of the novel, and I guess why did you return to Japan, a place you would live before the action of this novel took place, I believe, chronologically, and just sort of what drew you back in there to write this novel about these kids and other things? Uh, well, I, I've been wanting, of course, to write about Japan since I lived there. It just took, I guess, 20 some years to try to process that uh, incredible experience. Um, as far as the novel goes, uh, the, it involves uh, Wyatt's father and um, a year before the novel begins, um, Wyatt's mother has committed suicide. And uh, so when we, we open up the novel, uh, Wyatt's older sister has run away and she's been missing for several months. And they learn on the anniversary of, of his mother's death that his sister's working as a model in Tokyo. So they, they both pack up and, uh, and fly to Tokyo to try to, to bring her home. And that's, that's where Wyatt meets Ushimi. Stuff happens. Does this have anything to do with the karaoke man stuff at it all? It does, yeah. <laughs> I want to hear about that a little bit. That particular like style of singing in Japan just like, totally intrigued me. I looked up to some stuff. Let's yeah. hear some stuff about that. Well, uh, um, Wyatt's father, uh, uh, his daughter will not come home, and he decides I'll just stay in Tokyo until she's ready. Uh, so he takes a job uh, teaching English at Komatsu Machinery Incorporated, where I used to sub a little bit. and. Uh, uh, the businessmen, the salarymen, uh, his students go out drinking with him every night, which is what they do. And uh, it, it, they go to, the, of course, the karaoke bars, which is where karaoke came from uh, in the 1970s. Um, and they sing a certain style of music. Uh, it's called enka, which is a, a kind of a Japanese uh, ballad. Um, it's, it's kind of a cross between, uh, I'd say, Dean Martin and Frank Sinatra, the crooners of the 1950s. 
And then you add a touch of uh, Liberace, <laughs> or maybe uh, the Las Vegas era Wayne Newton, uh, and then you combine that with Japanese folk music. So it, <laughs> it's it, crazy. You can find it on YouTube. It's it's really a trip. Uh, but they're very sad, very sad uh, songs. The lyrics resemble country music. It's all about there's a lot of lost love and drinking and my hometown and I'm really lonely and I work a lot. That's kind of the, the themes of these songs. Uh, so uh, half the novel involves my main character uh, immersing himself in this late night world of uh, karaoke singing and they eventually enter a, a national song contest um, and they wear uh, peach colored leisure suits, kind of like the Temptations. And they, 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 they learn the moves of the Temptations because there's four of them, so they're able to dance and sing. And then they sing these, uh, these, these very sad songs. So that's, that's the gist of it. Yes, which is not unlike what you can find on YouTube, by the way. Some of that stuff is crazy. Um, other like, questions out there? Yes, Phil Bodie has a question. Japanese authors that are influential on your work. Yeah, when I, when I lived there, Murakami had just published Norwegian Wood, so I read that, of course, and then uh, got into Kawabata and, and you know a lot of the, the Japanese authors, so it just seemed the perfect place to read them, and I'm still a Murakami fan uh, a lot, yeah. I think After Dark was a wonderful novel. It's one of his recent books. In the piece tonight, why an adolescent character? Uh, I, I I always wanted to write from that viewpoint, and uh, it, it it really fit with the the storyline. Um, the when I taught there, I taught at a, a what would be a junior college, I think here. So I taught eighteen to twenty year olds, and and I did that for four years. And so I guess I wanted to kind of, you know bring my experience into the book. But I also wanted to use their viewpoint. Um, especially uh, in the writing of the book is when the disaster at Fukushima took place. So I'd already had them run away up north and suddenly the north was, was totally destroyed uh, as I was writing the novel. Uh, so I had to do a lot of research and, and go back. But um, I, I, uh, it's a good question. I just I think I, I was interested in working with their perspective. Yeah. Question over here. Were there pink flamingo gangs? One day, I don't know where. Uh, I think uh, after I after I'd made up the pink flamingos, one of my friends said, "You know that uh, the Flaming Lips have a, an album." called Yoshimi Battles the Pink Robot. So uh, I listened to it and I thought that was perfect for her. And then when the Flaming Lips played here in Boise, my son's a drummer in the band, so his band and I went to the show and I, I got right up to the stage. It was an outdoor thing. And if you've ever seen the Flaming Lips in concert, he, the main singer Wayne gets in a giant bubble, <laughs> like a giant 
uh, round bubble and he rolls onto the audience. And so while they were playing that song, he rolled on top of me and I got to hold him up. <laughs> like I'm holding up Wayne Coyne with my palm. And it was like super awesome. Like, this just has to be uh, a sign of some sort. I Yes, but it seemed to fit pretty naturally. Your images of just the Japanese culture are a little bit, I don't want to say, I mean, as a lame old white American guy, it's a little bit cartoonish in this wonderful way, though. Yeah. And so I thought you captured it really well with the way the interaction between them went and the images of that little bicycle gang, I suppose you call them, the flamingo. Right, right. So they're, yeah. they're, Both characters are very much into anime, so that, that fit with all of yeah, their, their perspective. I think, well, I see a question over there. Well, I to get you to relay that question through three people. Or if you want to come on up here or get closer, a little louder. Anything about Japanese food, which, yes, that should be a key. <laughs> uh, only the bar food at night, I think, when they're when they're out drinking. But yeah, not so much. Not so much. What do they eat late night in Japan? Well, good. Uh, some of the bar food uh, is uh, tofu, cold tofu with soy sauce, um, and then uh, of course uh, yakitori and, and and sushi and things like that. Uh, yeah. So just stuff that's easy to eat. Excellent. I had grasshoppers. I had, I had oh, grasshoppers really? and crickets once, I guess, at a bar. So. Are they raw? I mean, they fry them? They do, like, bread them? They're kind of, uh, in my memory, they're like chocolate covered. I don't know. They were dried and cold. And, not and delicious, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> Poor Jiminy. Um, sorry. Uh, I would ask this to personally, I know you, you know, this story is published in the Missouri Review, and you are the editor and founder of the Idaho Review, which has been in existence since 1998, That's I right. believe. And, you know, as a writer as of, you know, these short story things, that's where a lot of our stuff lands before it becomes a book or a novel. And I guess maybe talk for a second about the importance of uh, like literary reviews in the country and worldwide, I suppose, and maybe the changing face of it with a lot of online journals these days, too. Sure. Um, yeah, there's a famous story when, uh, you guys know the short story writer Raymond Carver, right? He studied with uh, John Gardner, who was equally famous as a, a writer and a teacher. Uh, and uh, the story goes that uh, John Gardner was teaching at Chico State, and Ray Carver was in his class. And one day, uh, Gardner came in with a big box full of literary journals, and he said, look, this is where the best uh, fiction and poetry and creative nonfiction is being published in the, in, the, in the country. And that would have been in the late 60s, and it's still true. Uh, if you look at that top commercial tier, you have the New Yorker, of course. Um, you have, you used to have the Atlantic Monthly, but I don't even know if they're doing fiction anymore. You have Esquire and Harper's, but beyond that, there's hardly any other outlets for the great poetry and, and short story and, and personal essay. And there's a, this proud network of literary journals in the US going back to 1892 was the first uh, one, the Swanee Review, which is still publishing four times a year and has ever since the late 1800s. Um, and 
it, it's really where the literature of tomorrow is being published. If you, uh, I have the pleasure, of course, of teaching fiction writing, so in all of the anthologies that I teach, uh, or even the prize anthologies, if you look at Best American and O'Henry Awards, uh, most of the stories in, in those uh, books come from literary magazines first. So it, it's just, a, it, they're a priceless uh, resource. And uh, I would encourage you to, I mean, it, it's for the price of a couple of cups of coffee, you can get a year subscription to the Southern Review or the Georgia Review or Missouri Review or Plowshares. And uh, the Idaho Review? The Idaho, the Idaho Review. Review. Yeah, you should pimp one. the Idaho Review, by the way. Idaho. You've had an amazing success with that, for sure. So tell us a little bit about some of the success and tell people where they can get it on this table over here yeah, and right or right through right Boise State. It's right over there. Um, uh, I started the Idaho Review in, in uh, yeah, as Chris said, in 98, and we've done uh, 14 issues now. We've had 12 appearances in the prize anthologies, which is there are eight to, uh, seven to 8,000 stories published in the U.S. a year, and of course, The Best American only picks the top 20. Oh, Henry just picks the top 20. Uh, and so we've, we've had 12 appearances in these, almost one an issue. Uh, and, and we've had, I think, about 27 stories shortlisted for these prize anthologies. The new issue has, uh, it's just coming out, the 2015. Let's see, we've got uh, Joyce Carol Oates, uh, T.C. Boyle, Rick Moody, Ann Beattie, Ron Carlson, and uh, oh, uh, a, a writer named Susan Strait. So it's really a super issue. But be out this fall. That sounds kind of lame, actually. That's terrible. <laughs> That's so good. Are you kidding me? That's fantastic. And Nicole Cohen, who read with us last year here at Campfire Stories, was published in actually her third published short story. That's right in the Idaho Review, and lo and behold, became a Best American short story um, in 2014. So it's a nice little legacy there, I guess. Oh, I was going to say one more thing. Cynthia Hand over there, Struloff. Hand Struloff was my office mate in the year 2000 in the LA building and when I started my MFA. And she has gone on to publish five books now, right? And more in the works. And Mitch Wieland was our workshop teacher. So it's, I mean, I don't know, kind of cool just to see this 15 years later. So thanks so much for showing up, everybody. And thanks, Mitch Wieland, Allison Green, Modern Hotel. You. Tip your waiters. This has been Campfire Stories, recorded live from the Modern Hotel and produced by Radio Boise. Thanks for listening.